It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, and here's our text this morning, hospitable. A sister of ours in Christ, and who is now a, the wife of a pastor in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, tells the story of how God used the hospitality of a, of a Christian minister to bring her to the Lord. She narrates a, a very awkward but life-changing experience that she had very soon after she met Reverend Ken Smith. She said, this was one of my first experiences of a Christian family feast. One that included the Smith family and some brothers and sisters of the church and me. The room hummed with grown-up laughter and the sing-song of children's voices. While I proclaimed the value of diversity, my community was entirely composed of white 30-something lesbian PhDs in the humanities. Children dragged in extra chairs. Bowls were overflowing with Floyd Smith steaming and savory, sweetened sour soybeans. And Ken heard us at the table with a gentle but firm touch. We all sat down and pulled up our mix and match chairs at the long table. No elbow room rebate. It was intimate but not stuffy. The conversation was marked with edgy questions of the day on which I took the opposing side. And Bible verses and principles, some that stood as answers and others opened more questions. We ate and talked and laughed. And then we sang Psalm 23. And here's where Butterfield's narrative really takes an interesting turn. As she talks about how Psalm 23, seeing that with that family, was something that God used to grab hold of her attention in a mighty way. She said, when we sang a table that has furnished me in the presence of my foes, I started to lose my sense of what was up. I started to get all turned around as if I had absent-mindedly taken the wrong path on a well-walked trail. I was trained to play the part of the victim and to perceive myself as a sexual minority, voiceless among the voice. And as we sang, I said to myself, yes, you're the victim here in the presence of your foes, these awful, hateful people who want to trample on your rights. But though victimhood served as my catechism, I couldn't make myself believe this while singing Psalm 23. Something wasn't right. And that's when it dawned on me that I, the English professor, was misreading the text. I wasn't the one dining in the presence of my enemies. I was the enemy. Can you imagine that? Here is, um, at this time, a self-professed Christ-hater, Christian-hater, an out and proud and loud lesbian, sitting at the table full of believers, singing from the Word of God, you have furnished a table for me in the presence of my enemies. How true Psalm 23.5 was. And through the faithful action of 
Pastor Smith reaching out to this woman in Christian love and inviting this stranger and enemy over to his home for dinner. God put a song on her lips that was true about her. Her enemies were the hosts, Ken and Floyd. God indeed had prepared a table for her in the midst of her enemies. And the astonishing thing is that God used that table, those people, that psalm, that obvious expression of Christian love and hospitality to start her down the path toward Jesus Christ. That's hospitality. That's our subject this morning. As we continue on in our exposition of the qualifications of the office of elder, we come to the qualification which our text says, hospitable. And Paul makes it clear that hospitality is a qualification for the office of elder. And so you men, as you listen to this exposition this morning, I begin with application where I have throughout this series, you are to seek this office. You are to desire to seek this office. And Paul puts his approbation upon the desire to seek the office because he says the work of the office is good. But more than that, you are to seek this office not simply because the work of the office is good, but because the qualifications of this office are good. And this morning, we come to a little piece more of the slice of goodness that is these qualities of the office of elder hospitality we're going to break that down into three portions this morning meaning duty and motives and so we begin with meaning and i already sort of uh, gave you a little bit of a sense of the meaning of the word hospitality because it comes from the word philoxenus which is made up of two greek words here love and stranger. And I think some of you already know that that word xenos means stranger. It's the word we get our English word xenophobia from, fear of strangers. And so here in our text this morning, we have a word that smooshes together two words and makes one general concept, which is hospitality, the love of strangers. And though I do believe, as we read in our illustration here in our introduction and opening comments and remarks, that hospitality indeed does include the idea of gathering around a table with believers and non-believers for a meal, that doesn't by any means exhaust the meaning of it, nor is it even the primary meaning of it. Because you see here, the word simply means to love strangers. That's already the meaning of the term in the Old Testament. We have example of the very concept of hospitality, though the term itself isn't used there. We find it in the statute of the law in Leviticus chapter 19, beginning at verse 33, where we have the Jewish hospitality mandate, or we could say the Old Testament hospitality mandate. And it says, when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
Notice the command in the statute pertains to hospitality, which is the love of strangers, because the statute literally includes the word stranger, the goer, the non-citizen, the non-Jew, the non-covenanted member who was living in the land. And at the heart of the, of the duty of the people of God to the stranger is you shall do him no wrong. That means to mistreat or take an advantage of or to cause oppression of somebody who is weaker. And the flip side of that, the commandment isn't simply negative, it's positive. The flip side of the command is you shall love him. So here you have philosophers, literally, you shall love the stranger. Now I find that to be a fascinating connection because we're seeing a moment in the New Testament that in every single text where hospitality is commanded in the New Testament, it flows out of an immediate love with the specific application and duty to show hospitality here. But I want you to think about the basis that God brings into the statute as well. He doesn't simply give a command. He gives a reason. He says, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And if memory serves me correctly, it didn't go well. In fact, Egypt was called Israel's house of bondage. They were not received with the same love and kindness and hospitality that God required. So here God says, because you were aliens and strangers, you are to remember your harsh treatment that you received at the hands of the Egyptian. And instead of oppressing the alien and the stranger, you are to love them. You are to be hospitable to them. And then he underscores it with a, with a bright highlighter pen. I am the Lord your God. It's hard to be more emphatic about a point to reinforce it than to say, here is the exclamation point. The duty is reinforced based upon nothing less than the sovereignty and the almightiness of God your Creator and your Redeemer. And so, Testament, which gives us the meaning of hospitality. You are to love and to befriend and show kindness to the stranger. That's the meaning. And as we're thinking about meaning, let's consider sense. And at this point, I think it would be useful for you to turn with me over to Luke chapter 10 because Jesus takes up this um, hospitality mandate, if you will, that it is the love of strangers, and he expounds upon it in a particular way. You'll know this story from learning it on your mama's knee. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, right? One of the most well-known and popular stories in all of the Gospels. The story of the Good Samaritan. And you remember that the story of the Good Samaritan flows out of a situation where a lawyer was trying to trip Jesus up. If you will look back into the context here above verse 34, you'll notice that there was a lawyer standing by who was asking Jesus, what was uh, the substance of the law? What was the heart of the law? 
what was the, the most significant thing in the law. And so Jesus, as you will know, repeats what is the heart and the essence of the, the totality of the law of God, that which the law and the prophets hang upon, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what do you think the the pharisaical lawyer does as he hears Jesus expound the heart of the law? Well, he wants to get picky. He takes out his glasses and he begins to fix upon the fine print. Well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? That's the setup, if you will, for what Jesus goes on to speak about here in verse 30. And so Jesus goes on to answer that question by saying unexpectedly uh, to this lawyer, your neighbor is the stranger. Your neighbor is the stranger. And so then Jesus begins to tell one of the most well-known and beloved stories in all of the Gospels. And he says the story begins with with a man from Jerusalem. And uh, for whatever reason, this man from Jerusalem uh, decided to take a walk and go to Jericho. And so as he was walking eastward from Jerusalem to Jericho, at some point along the way, some robbers and thugs and thieves descended upon him and beat him within within an inch of his life and left him for dead upon uh, the side of the road. And then Jesus now begins to answer the question, who is a neighbor? Who is a stranger? And so then Jesus speaks about the religious elite. He says, first of all, uh, along along comes down this road um, one of the priests. And the priest, uh, uh, upon coming upon the situation, he sees the man mutilated and beaten to a pulp. And instead of the stop to see him and to ask how he's doing, he swings wide around him to the opposite side of the road and continues, as Jesus says, to pass by. And then not long after that, here comes a Levite trucking down the same path from from Jerusalem to Jericho. And upon entering the scene and seeing the mayhem and and the abuse and the violence and, and the evidence of this man's misery, what does the Levite do? Well, the Levite um, walks one who's a bloody mess and keeps passing by. So here we have two of the religious elites passing by a man who is in desperate condition. And then Jesus begins to tell us about the Samaritan. And through this action, Jesus is touching the heart and the nerve of hospitality. Because as you see now in verse 33, but a Samaritan. You need to hear that with all of the fear and dread and loathing and contempt with which a first century Jew would have heard this. You might as well call him a Gentile. He's a Samaritan. And I want you to notice what Jesus spotlights. He came and he saw and he felt compassion. 
the order of the verbs is significant here because it's precisely the same order of the verbs that were in the prior verses about the religious elites. The priests came, and the priests saw, and the priests passed by. Then the Levite came, and the Levite saw, and the Levite passed by. So with the same order as here, they came, they saw, and they left. Now what's so significant about that is that they saw the suffering. They saw the mutilation. They saw the bleeding. They saw the misery. They saw the pain. But notice now what happens when the Samaritan comes. Jesus fixes on the verb. And he saw. And now he changes the storyline. And he felt. Splunkizomai. His bowels moved. That's the most visceral way to say he was deeply connected to this man as he sees him in his misery. He is deeply moved from the innermost part of his being with the most raw and visceral sense of compassion that you can have. This is precisely what the religious people did not do. And how ironic is that? Think about it. How ironic is that? Because... uh, I think we have to assume that a man taking a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is a Jew, right? I think that's what we should assume. And so here we have two Jews, although they're elite, yes, they're religious people. You have the the priest and the Levite. They come upon a fellow Jew, and they do the opposite of what they're commanded to do, which is to love their neighbor as themselves. And they pass by. And then counter to expectation, here comes the Samaritan who is the what? He's the stranger. He's the person that is to be loved. And not oppressed according to the law. And he's the one that stops and bandages, shows compassion, and is moved. It's a massive role reversal. Jesus is flipping the script to stick it to this this pharisaical lawyer who's fixated upon the fine print of what Jesus said. Who is the neighbor? And Jesus said, you should care less about who is the neighbor. Who's the stranger? That's what you were to be thinking of. Who is the the stranger, because not only are you to love your neighbor as yourself, you are to love the stranger as yourself. And so Jesus tells a story which epitomizes the meaning of hospitality as we read here of how the Samaritan bandaged him and poured oil and wines in his wounds and put him upon his beast and brought him to the inn. And took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay it to you. Hospitality. The love of strangers. He came upon the battered and abused and suffering stranger. And he bandaged him up and he took him to the hospital and he paid his He paid the bill, and then he opened up a line of credit in case more money needed to be spent for his rehabilitation. Jesus tells the story to shame the lawyer, yes. 
Jesus says, you're all wrong in what you're thinking about. You're obsessed about your stranger because you're thinking about how do I calculate the duties of love? And Jesus is saying, you missed it. The neighbor is a stranger. And you should have known that if you'd read the law of God. This is what it is, Jesus says, to fulfill the statute of Leviticus 19.33. But more than that, this is hospitality. This is what it looks like. Jesus illustrates it. Love of strangers. And so as we think about his, here uh, this morning, people of God, I, I want us to, to, to step back from the concept of hospitality because so often when I hear Christians speak of hospitality, and I know it's well-intentioned, generally what I hear from them in terms of their own sense and understanding of the concept of hospitality, that it's about inviting a friend or a church member over to your house to have dinner with them. That's a very fine thing to do. But that's not the primary meaning of hospitality, though it would be included within it. It, it misses the, the, the much wider and broader field of the biblical sense of hospitality, which literally means love of the stranger and of the needy and of the destitute. And so I think it's important as we consider this all-important qualification of the office of elder that we have a sense of the broader biblical understanding of it in case we miss it. But beyond that, we need to understand what hospitality is so we know how to involve ourselves in it. The point of the sermon here this, this morning is designed to provoke us to seek after this quality because this is what it looks like to be growing into the stature of the fullness of the measure of Christ. Hospitality. It's a provision of real love and friendship to those who are in need. Before I move on to the next point about it, we've seen the meaning here. I want to linger just a moment and think about how the New Testament church heard this. Because something that is extremely striking and noteworthy about early Christianity is that the hospitality mandate seems to have really left a mark, an imprint, an impression upon the early church. Hospitality was, was highly regarded in practice among ancient Christians. And in fact, it is isolated and regarded as one of the leading factors for why the gospel spread and conquered the pagan Roman Empire within three centuries of its birth. If you look back at the old sources that are available to us from the sub-apostolic era and then beyond that, we find references to hospitality and to its excellence. So for example, in a letter called First Clement, which was written by Clement, who was, a, was an elder or pastor, in the church of Rome, and he was writing to the church in Corinth to correct some abuses of church discipline. He commences the letter by commending them for their faith. And here's what he says about the Corinthians. For who that had sojourned among you did not approve of your most virtuous and steadfast faith? Who did not admire your sober and forbearing piety in Christ? Who did not publish abroad your magnificent disposition of hospitality? He can barely take two steps into the letter and into his commendation of their faith before he gets to what he says authenticates and seals 
the genuineness and steadfastness of their faith was the magnificent disposition of hospitality. In the writings of Hermas, a second century pastor and elder, he writes in one of his books called The Mandates uh, about hospitality, commending it. He says it's the being uh, hospitable, for in hospitality, good doing finds a field. And he goes on to describe it, assisting the widows, inviting the orphans and the poor, ransom God's servants, show hospitality, help oppressed debtors in their need. The second century, Bishop Melito of Sardis wrote a book on hospitality. The fourth century church of Antioch was renowned for its hospitality, caring for 3,000 widows, sick, and strangers on a daily basis. And from there, it became a model for the rest of the larger churches throughout the empire. You see, hospitality stamp upon these early believers. And it made a profound difference. Sociologist uh, named Rodney Stark about 20 years ago wrote a book trying to account for what historians have been grappling with ever since Edward Gibbons wrote about the fall of the Roman Empire centuries ago, trying to say, how in the world did this thing happen, which is inexplicable from a human perspective? How did this fledgling group of people, which began with 12 and then 120 and then the mere few thousands, how did it within the scope and space of three centuries take down this worldwide phenomenon known as paganism. Well, at least in the Roman Empire. How in the world did it completely supplant paganism? And out of some of the reasons that Stark supplies, he says it's because Christians appear to have practiced hospitality much more effectively than any other group, and they provided the essentials of social security. This is confirmed by a letter written by the Roman Emperor Julian in the mid-4th century A.D. Uh, He was lamenting, as he wrote to a pagan priest, uh, the supplanting of paganism by Christianity. And one of his goals as Roman Emperor, this is after the death of Constantine, was to restore paganism to its brilliance and its position of dominance. But here is what he said he needed to do to revive paganism. We ought then to share our money with all men, but more generously with good and with the helpless and the poor, so as to suffice for their need. Did you hear that? A pagan is writing to a pagan priest saying, here's how we need to reconfigure paganism to make it attractive. And why did he say that to this pagan priest? Because he goes on to say, the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, support not only their own, but ours as well. And all men see that our people, the pagans, lack from us. In other words, this pagan is testifying to the reason for the attractiveness of Christianity. And he's explaining or or seeking to account for its growth and how it's become so dominant. And he says, because they love people. They love even the stranger. And he says, all men see that we don't even take care of ourselves, let alone the stranger. You see... 
this Christian commitment to love the neighbor and to love the stranger authenticated the faith. And so Christian hospitality and gospel conquest seem to have gone together like hand in glove. Because, you see, the mercy of God in Christ is to be, through the gospel, is to be accompanied with the mercy of God through the hands and fingers, which is the members of the church, as they minister mercy to the needy in a way that authenticates the genuineness of the experience of Christian faith. We'll talk about that more when we come to the diaconate. But, you know, here this is the the quality of hospitality, and it's laid down as an example. So we come back to our text here, and we think now about the duty. And as I think of the duty, I want to think about two things here. The charged and the charge. The charged and the charge. In other words, when I ask, who is supposed to be doing this? Who is supposed to be hospitable? And, and obviously we begin where our text does. Uh, elders and pastors are. Notice here, an overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, <coughs> hospitable. Titus 1.8, the overseer, and he lists several qualifications, is to be not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid game, but hospitable. And here's our word again, phylloxenos, love and care shown to strangers. There was a lot that was involved in that. This love of strangers had a number of elements, even as Calvin notes here. He says, during the persecution of the godly, many persons um, had to move from their homes. And so he says there was a necessity that the houses of bishops or elders would be made available as retreat for the exiles. This gives expression to another vein, if you will, of hospitality in antiquity, in the, in the apostolic era, in the sub-apostolic era, is that... Um, in-home care for people, providing uh, the house as a place to stay, to vacation in, or not necessarily vacation, but to find refuge in as, as people either traveled because of persecution or traveled for business. There's something interesting that, that begins to come online in, in the Roman Empire of this time, that as, uh, as trade uh, grew, and the ability to travel grew at this time in the Roman Empire, well, a new industry came online called the hospitality industry, where you had um, what are called inns and taverns. The only problem is they were so known to be full of vice and danger that any kind of a virtuous person wouldn't be caught dead there or wake up dead there. So this became something that Christians became known for in that era is that they would even be willing to host a a pagan in their home to give them refuge and a place to stay so they could avoid the tavern. Later on, you'll find Calvin commenting in various passages about hospitality. He'll say by the 16th century, this isn't needed because the vice was corrected in the inns and taverns. But he says in ancient times, this was one of the applications to have people in the home and to provide them refuge from the dangers that they might encounter in the inns and taverns. And so he says here, this must be a duty of the elders. 
And he says this, if bishops had not appointed out the paths to others in this department of duty, the greater part, following their example, would have, next, would have neglected the exercise of humanity. So this is one of the reasons why the bishops and the elders and the pastors had to give themselves to this, is that if they don't set the example, who will? It would be neglected. And the destitute and the poor and the needy would be without help. Knight expands upon it, and I've been using his commentary. I commend it to you as a very faithful commentary. He, he recently just um, passed, but he was a known man uh, of, of, of immense learning and of um, faithfulness academically. He was a, a Presbyterian pastor and scholar, and, and he wrote a fantastic commentary on the pastoral epistles. And this is his comment here on, on this verse and the duty of hospitality. He says, he who must teach others and take care of and exercise oversight over them must be open to loving them. He says, it seems to just follow from the nature of the situation. If you're going to be over somebody and an overseer and somebody who's seeking to bless them through the ministry of the word and the ministry of rule, then it needs to be the case that you show kindness and hospitality, not just to the stranger, but to the church member. And so we say here, as we, as we think about the qualification of hospitable for the office of elder and the office of pastor here, I say this for all of you, and I've continued to urge you to desire the work because it's excellent. And if you desire the work, you should desire the qualifications and the qualities, and here's one, the need to commit to hospitality and to the love of strangers to bless the stranger, and to bless the people of God with kindness. But it's not just for pastors. Romans 12 verse 13 says, Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. We have the same term here. We know now that the apostle is speaking to all of the people of God. The... the um, the, the participle here, practicing, is imperatival in force, which means it's commanded, and it's a very intense term. It means to strive after it. It's so powerful. Let me just hear this. This is from uh, St. Chrysostom, the great golden-tongue order preacher of antiquity. Here's his comment on the verse, and it's lovely. He does not say doing it, but given to it. So to instruct us not to wait for those that shall ask it and see when they will come to us, but to run to them and be given to finding them. Here we have a flavor, as I said, of that commitment of antiquity in the ancient church to this commitment to hospitality. He says, don't wait for it to come. Run to it. It's something to be proactive about. How about Hebrews 13.2? I want you to turn over there and to look at it because it's such an important text and we'll be thinking about it more in just a moment as we get into, and we get into the motives of hospitality. But, but how about this here? Uh, verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this some have entertained angels without knowing. I'm going to come back to that under our motive section. But, but for now, how about just this? It's very clear here that we have a commandment because the text says, do not neglect. See that? that? That's a command. Do not neglect. 
hospitality. It falls upon the people of God. And I, I want to illustrate this in a way that, that I hope grabs your attention. Because the word here in our text is used in, in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10. And you'll remember that this is a pivotal moment in the life and history of the New Testament church because up to this point in the history of the church and in the book of Acts, the gospel hadn't spread, had it? It was just among the Jews. It was just in Palestine. And Peter, you can see, is sort of meandering his way northward along the, the scope from of the Mediterranean there by Caesarea and, and even in a few different places that feel like the borders of the gospel are pushing out uh, beyond the land a little bit here. But he stays now in the house of a man called Simon the Tanner. It's something that got me as I looked at the distribution of the word of this word for hospitality is so interesting here because verse 6 says he is staying with Tanner named Simon. Verse 23, so he invited them in, gave them lodging. Verse 32, therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who's also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying in the house. We also have in verse 18 that he is uh, staying with Simon. Now, it, it looks a little tepid there, but the word is hospitality in every single one of those cases. You say, why are you bothering with this? We're talking about the, the charged. And I said, precisely, who is he staying with? He is staying with Simon the He is a tanner means that he is a socially ostracized man. And the reason is because he is a Jew and because he's constantly dealing with carcasses of dead animals he is in a perpetual state of ritual impurity. Any Jew worth his salt would have stayed a mile or way or more from his house and from him. And so here is a man who grew up socially cut off from everyone. And yet when the gospel is, is, is blasting out from the borders of Palestine, where is Peter staying? but in a man who would have been regarded as a stranger to his community and entirely cut off from the people of God. And yet, he is the one showing Peter hospitality and permitting him to stay in his home. And for that, God favored Simon by what? Allowing his rooftop to be the place where Peter received the vision of the four-cornered sheet full of the unclean animals to descend to the earth so that Peter would understand that it was time for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. You see, God favored the obedience of this man to the duty of showing love and kindness to strangers by granting that life-changing, world-changing, church-changing vision. The point of it is, if this socially awkward and ostracized man who is kept at an arm's length by everybody around him could feel the weight and the force and the duty and the obligation of love of strangers, how couldn't we? After all, we are the beneficiaries of what Simon did. Because 
that vision of Peter on that rooftop of Simon led to the strangers, the Gentiles who were strangers to the covenants of promise to be opened up and to led into the church of Christ as Peter went forward to preach in the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. You see, there's great gospel connection here as we think about this quality, this quality of hospitality. It's a command to elders. It's a qualification. And it's a command to the people of God. Where will we find people who are qualified to serve as elders? We'll find them among the people of God doing what all the people of God are doing. We'll find them among the people of God doing what all of the people of God are doing. Not neglecting to show kindness to strangers and to the needy. Flip over with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 where we see here that Peter speaks of hospitality. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. I don't need to spend um, much time here on hospitable. I think we already know now um, what it means. It means to show kindness to a stranger. Expanded beyond that to the needy. And so it would refer to friendship towards stranger and being present with them and providing for their needs and rendering meaningful aid as the Good Samaritan did or perhaps providing lodging to the traveler or showing kindness or liberality or even to inviting friends and and neighbors and loved ones into your home for dinner. But Calvin says something here that I find to be very gripping about the sense and meaning. He says, in hospitality, there is a sacred kind of humanity. In hospitality, there is a sacred kind of humanity. Isn't that true? It it is to look at the person and not serve them based upon how you value their worth. It is to look upon the person as valuable because they are made in the image of God, whether you know them or not. Whether they're your kind of people or not whether even they speak your language or not. But what, is catch, what, what catches the eye here is not just the, the blanket command and duty given to all believers, but the qualification. The qualification, Peter says, without complaint. You say, well, why in the world would you need to add that? That's supposed to be kind of funny. Of course you need to add that. No grumbling. No private complaining. That's what he says. No private complaining. No internal reaction where you view this as something that is unwanted and unfavorable. Why would you need to add that? Because Calvin says, it's a rare example that one spends himself on his own neighbor without any disparaging reflection. I'll repeat it again. It's a rare example. One spins himself and his own on his neighbor without any disparaging reflection. He says it's hard. It's hard to do. It's difficult to be hospitality. Why? Because you're too tired. Because you're too busy. Because you're too overwhelmed. Because you're too out of resources. Because it's not the right time. 
Because you have scheduling conflicts. The list goes on and on about why it's too much. And yet Peter gives the command and he says, don't be grumbling about it. It's a duty for all of the people of God. And because it's so difficult, I'm going to end my message this morning on motive. I'm going to end my message this morning on motive. I'm going to give you three three motives. And uh, you know, each one is important. And the first motive is love. And I'm going to just kind of um, leave you here in First Peter because I think it's a pretty obvious connection. But I'm going to remind you it's in other passages. So you come to Romans chapter 12, verse 13. And, and our portion of the text said, contributing the needs of the saints. But if you were to look in the context right before that, say, hey, what was uh, Paul talking about? The answer is he's talking about love. In verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. In verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And so finally, when you get to verse 13, here he is again talking about love, but now it's a specific application. So Calvin says he returns to the duties of love. Charles Hodge says these virtues are the immediate fruits of love. So how is the general command of Christian love expressed specifically? It's very clear. As the Apostle says, devoting yourself to hospitality. How about Hebrews 13.2? It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now what precedes that? I bet you know, because we read this as one of our law readings. Verse 1 says, let love of the brethren continue. Then verse 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. There's an immediate conjunction between the general command of loving your neighbor and its specific application, which is to show hospitality. But I said stay in 1 Peter 4, so look at what it says. And here we'll just start at verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Notice once again, the immediate conjunction between the motive and the duty of love and its specific application. Be hospitable. And do it without grumbling. If you're straining at the duty of showing kindness to strangers and to the needy and the people of God. Reach for the motive. Christian love. Turn over to Hebrews 13. I think this is a powerful text here. We have a powerful motive. One that uh, may be underestimated, not spoken of too much. But again, I mean, you can't miss it here. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without noticing it. Notice the specific basis and warrant for showing hospitality. For, by this, that means by hospitality, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And entertaining doesn't mean amusing. It's not talking about a juggling act or something like that. Entertain is the word for hospitality. So what, what, what the preacher is saying, for, for by By showing hospitality to strangers, you have shown hospitality to angels. Well, who wouldn't want to entertain an angel? Who wouldn't want to entertain an angel? I have to say, this is one of the most astonishing, remarkable, and unique motives for obedience in all the Bible. 
you are literally being motivated to righteous action by the idea and the prospect that you just might be entertaining an angel or angels while you do it. So, uh, I got to do what I normally do when I come across a difficult text. I say, well, what did Calvin say? What did Poole say? What did Matthew... I know what the modern people will say, and they can get goofy or wrong or whatever, but but I'll just go back to these. What did they say? Here's what Poole said. I'll just tell you what he said. The general guard of angels goes along with the saints and are entertained in them. And they never come without a blessing. This is Matthew Poole, and he's saying when you are entertaining... When you are showing hospitality, he says the general band of angels is present with them. And in that ministry of hospitality, there are the angels. And they don't come without blessing. See, he's saying, here's your motive. Here's your motive. When you exercise obedience to the command of God, he savors it with his grace with this wonderful blessing of being ministered to by the angels. What's the final one? Turn with me to Matthew 25. The final one is Matthew 25, 35. And I think it's worthwhile to see this for yourself. Jesus here is speaking about and painting a picture of of the scene of the last day. And he speaks about when he comes again, how he is going to bestow the grant of the kingdom of God upon the saints. And we're going to hear those blessed words come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom of God prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, beginning of verse 35 begins with the word for. Now we're receiving explanation for why the kingdom of God is being granted and bestowed for. And so he goes on to say, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and invited me in. Now it's very important here to understand that Jesus is not giving the meritorious basis for the reception of the kingdom. Jesus is not saying, here is why you will hear these wonderful words. Uh, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, because you were full of meritorious works. I hope you have enough of them. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is speaking here about the kind of works that authenticate genuine faith. I want you to see what kind of works authenticate genuine faith. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. That doesn't sound very glamorous. I don't think this will get you a big TikTok following. This doesn't come with... This is miserable, hard work, the kind of thing that people grumble about doing. And yet Jesus is saying, here, 
This is what authenticates it. But I want you to notice the last phrase in verse 35 because it connects explicitly to hospitality. And it brings us to our last motive. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Remember what the meaning of philoxenus is. It's two different words. Philo, love or kindness. Xenos, stranger. Notice we have the word xenos here. Stranger. I was xenos. And what did you do? You invited me in. The verb here is a verb form, which is a synonym of hospitality. Now, connect the dots. Drop to verse 40. So here's the people of God saying, well, when did, when did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You see now where Poole and Henry and Calvin are getting the idea that by doing this, by ministering to the stranger and to the needy, in that very act, the angel is there and Christ is there. And so by doing it to them, you are doing it to Christ. This is the third motive. Jesus is saying, this is the motive for evangelism. If you dig down into the depths of it, to do it to one of these, even the least, is to do it to me. I know that word grumbling is a powerful term. But I think this is a powerful motive. To bless, to help, to serve, to show kindness, to feed, to provide for. And in so doing, you're doing it unto Jesus Christ. What could be more motivating and inspiring and wonderful? What is a greater motive? What is a greater honor? What is a greater work than to serve Jesus Christ? We owe Jesus Christ everything. We owe him our life. We owe him our salvation. We owe him our experience of grace. We owe him our restoration in the image of God. We owe him our renewal of spirit, justification, sanctification, preservation, growth, and grace. We owe everything. How then... Could we not serve him with cheerfulness by serving the stranger, the needy, the destitute, the outcast, the awkward, the believer? Because in doing that, he accompanies them. And in that service, we minister to Christ. Men, you should aspire to the office of elder because it's an excellent work. You should aspire to the office of elder because it calls for the cultivation of the greatest qualities. You should seek to want to bear this quality of hospitality, a servant of Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ. Whether you are ever ordained and installed to service in the office, it's irrelevant because every single person who is a member of Christ and a part of the people of God stands under the obligation to not just have the quality, but to be engaged in the ministry and the work and the service of hospitality. So people of God, we all have an office of and calling. And the reason we have it is because we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
we are being given the privilege and the benefit of entertaining angels and receiving their blessing while we do it. And thirdly, because the greatest honor in life is serving Jesus Christ. And we do that when we love the stranger and engage in hospitality. May God help us all to adorn His marvelous quality of grace and to exercise this Christian duty of hospitality.